This podcast is free and it's accessible to everyone thanks to support from listeners like you. If you value this show, please consider supporting its production by donating to our home, KUOW. It only takes a minute to give and you'll be helping to support the production of this podcast. Make a donation at KUOW.org or follow the link in the show notes. And thanks. Welcome to KUOW Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this episode, we're heading east of the mountains to Spokane for a new episode in the Rebuilding Democracy series, hosted this time by Doug Nadvornik. The series is a collaboration between Humanities Washington, KUOW, Spokane Public Radio, and Northwest Public Broadcasting. This is Rebuilding Democracy. I'm Doug Nadvornik from Spokane Public Radio. Our civic dialogue in 2020 was, shall we say, loud and buffeted by a variety of forces. A once-in-a-century pandemic limited our mobility and hindered our economy. There was a presidential race centered around an unusually strong-willed incumbent and aftershocks when that incumbent chose not to go quietly after it was determined he had lost the election. Technology has given virtually everyone a megaphone to share their opinions with the world. It has allowed us to see and hear some of the turbulence. This is a montage from the footage taken by New Yorker reporter Luke Mogelson from the U.S. Capitol insurrection on January 6th. In the Northwest, there have been less extreme but also passionate acts of defiance. Last July, the Regional Health Board in North Idaho approved a mask mandate for an entire county to stop the spread of COVID. We have one, two, three, four yes votes and two no votes and the resolution passes. In this program, we'll hear how those forces, that anger, required elected leaders and the heads of some of our institutions to find new ways to communicate with their constituents. It has made for a really robust moment of of lots of discourse and lots of communication and and fielding lots of of questions and, and lots of critique. This hour, we'll talk with a few of those leaders about how they've adapted And we'll consider a complaint we've heard often the last few years. We don't teach civics in school anymore. That claim is not true, at least in some schools. Having civic education is incredibly important to be well-informed as a voter and a citizen. And I find it important knowing how to be active in my community and having the chance to share my voice. Civic discourse isn't just a conversation between community leaders and the people they serve. It also includes the relationships among the people who hold office. For example, when leaders in the executive branch, mayors and county executives, can't get along with their counterparts who serve on city or county councils, it's hard to get anything useful done. 
In Spokane, the two leading elected officials say they're working hard to build that relationship. Though their offices are nonpartisan, Mayor Nadine Woodward and Council President Brian Beggs are philosophically different politically. Woodward is more conservative, Beggs more progressive. And yet they've generally worked well together since each began serving in their current positions at the beginning of 2020. I'll just tell you, I have worked so hard locally coming into office um, to work with our city council, the seven members. I do one-on-ones with them. I, I meet with Council President Beggs once a week. My priority was to build relationships when I came into this office with our city council, different branches of government, executive and legislative, so that we could lean in on the common ground and do the work of the city. But when we had differences, Doug, because we had those relationships built and a trust level there, that we could have those tough conversations. Face-to-face conversations humanize each other. And so I I can remember several times uh, being in meetings on Monday mornings, first thing with my staff and us being riled up about something. And then like, okay, I'm going to have my Monday meeting with the mayor, which is a huge improvement from the last administration because it was not nearly as often. But then I go in and have a conversation with the mayor. We talk about it and we see each other that we're human beings. And suddenly it's not quite as rancorous and we don't always reach agreement, but I feel less emotional about it coming out of it because I see her as just a person like lots of people in my lives. And so I think that's really important. The whole Uh, gravitation to email communication and social media communication is so imperfect because words are only 7% of communication. And so we just lose that richness and the empathy that we can develop for each other. And then the other thing is I think both of us realize that you don't get anywhere by staying in your corners and being completely polarized. And so we just know that the more we communicate and talk about things, the better it will be, even if we're not on the same page. We operate under two principles, and it's worked out very, very well. Number one, we don't surprise each other. If, if something's going to come down, I, I do not want to surprise them with something that I'm going to do or a comment that I'm going to make or a decision I'm going to make. I let them know ahead of time. And number two, we do not disparage in public. Because we disagree with one another, we do not attack each other personally in the media, in the community, or with our colleagues. And, and we've been able to live to those principles. Because of the pandemic, Spokane City Council meetings have been held online for the last 10 months, and the seven council members have generally worked from home. Council President Brian Beggs says that has changed their dynamics of talking about issues and working on legislation. I've heard from so many people, uh, and, and these are council members and staff, that they say, I'm out of the loop. I don't know what's going on. And I keep telling them, yeah, nobody does. <laughs> there is no loop. Uh, no, nobody knows exactly what's going on, except as best we can stay in touch by phone calls and Zoom calls and things like that. And so there is kind of an uh, underlying disquiet and disconnection. And that does get in the way of um, consensus and moving things forward. So, so in some ways, it's been an impediment. Uh, I think the bigger impediment, though, is just the distraction of the pandemic and all its um, uh, consequences. And that just takes the oxygen out of the room for other things. I've been amazed about how much we have gotten done. 
Part of the job of being a council member and mayor is listening to what your constituents say. Mayor Nadine Woodward says people have been particularly vocal during the pandemic. People wanted to be listened to. And it it was a vast cross-section of of our community. It, It was the businesses. It was people who were out of work. It was people who couldn't pay their rent. It was people who, um, you know, didn't know if they were going to be able to put food on their table. It was people who were worried about our houseless during a health pandemic. How are we going to offer them healthy shelter? I mean, it was it it, it ran, uh, you know, a, a cross section of, of of people, but but they all had a desire. They wanted to be listened to, and so those conversations continue. They still continue today, Doug. Um, you know, because we're not fully open, but but. Uh, you know, there was there's a balance too to protecting the health of the community and the economic health of the community as well. That was always the challenge of striking the right balance. But I believe it, it it's all of that. It's not one or the other. It's all of it. So, do you have a feel for whether or not city government is more trusted or less as you've gone along? Do you feel like you have the support of the of a majority of the folks here for for what has been done this year? I mean, I, I, I hope so. I mean, I, I think I do. Um, you know, there are the loud critics on social media um, and they're they're. I think they're a minority, but I think they're very, very loud. Uh, but when I'm out in the public, man, that's not what I see or hear at all. Um, people are very thankful for the, the measured leadership. Um, the fact that there was, you know, we didn't instill panic that that uh, I'm, I'm a I'm a pragmatist. Uh, or a pragmatic type of leader. And and I, I like to involve lots of voices and lots of people and have a measured approach. I always believe the more choices you have, the better decision you make. And so to bring people together, I'll tell you what, our regional collaboration during all of this, Doug, has served us well, not just during this pandemic, but well in the future. We're addressing homelessness as a region like we've never before been able to do, all because of the of how we started as a region in our in the way we address COVID, and we did it coming together. We're stronger when we're together, and we're going to be stronger on the other side of this. We're going to take this regional collaboration as we're working through COVID, as we're now addressing homelessness. We're going to address housing. We're going to address our economic recovery, and 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 all of that. It's it's um it's been a wonderful thing that has come out of this. So will things get better when we finally get rid of this coronavirus, and you can go and and you can go and talk with people face to face without masks? Uh, it will in a way, but I will tell you that uh, just city council-wise, not having a room of 150 people agitated in front of us, uh, that that has helped us on our meetings. I don't know if you've tuned into our public commentary that we've had, but it's far more measured <laughs> without the crowd there. In this political climate, public officials take their share of grief. As a social justice attorney and now as a city council president, Brian Beggs takes a lot of criticism from the public. I asked how well he deals with it. You know, I read a book several years ago uh, called The Four Agreements by Michael Ruiz. And one of them is a principle that you simply take nothing personal, uh, which is a really handy skill if you can do it. And I can't always do it, but I, you know, I get, as you might imagine, attacked regularly from all sorts of people, uh, by email, on the phone, in meetings. And I just realized they don't know me. uh, And often they're uninformed about what it is I've allegedly done or not done. And they're just upset. And it's really not about me. It's about them. 
And I, that book has really helped me do that. And then beyond that, just practicing that in law. I mean, literally, lawyers are kind of known from arguing in front of a judge and then going out for drinks afterwards and checking in on each other's families. We really need to develop that uh, personal skill. And I was thinking about that this morning, and I was realizing the place that I've, I've seen that taught the best is in high school debate programs. I'm a big, big fan of them. And, and the reason it works is that in debate, each uh, round of the debate tournament you're in, you have to change sides of the argument. So you, you're quickly taking on the other side, and you realize that it's all about the argument that you're making. It's not about the person on the other side. And uh, that would be so much healthier for our society if people could uh, figure that out. Beggs was a supporter of an ordinance last year that potentially moves Spokane closer to adding fluoride to its drinking water. It was a controversial position to take. I noted uh, in the fluoride discussion, there's a lot of online uh, upsetness about it and people attacking me. And I don't really do social media, but I have people in my life who follow things for me. And they noted that there were certain leaders that says, you know what, that our leaders are good leaders. They just have a different opinion than you. Attacking them, calling for people to show up on their in their front yards is not going to help the matter. Let's convince them with logic and data uh, and policy arguments. And so everybody just has to keep reminding themselves of that because there's always going to be someone that's so upset that they've sort of lost track of that level of um, discourse. And we could all go there. We have all been that upset. And I think if we give each other a little grace and empathy that, yep, I could be there tomorrow, I need someone to help ground me because that's the only way to move forward. That's Spokane City Council President Brian Beggs and before that, Mayor Nadine Woodward. Coming up after the break, how two institutions, public health and public schools, have adjusted their communications in the coronavirus era. This is Rebuilding Democracy from Spokane Public Radio. This program is part of a collaboration between Spokane Public Radio, Humanities Washington, Northwest Public Broadcasting, and KUOW Seattle, exploring civic and electoral participation in the United States. Support for this program comes from the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation and was administered by the Federation of State Humanities Councils. This is Rebuilding Democracy. The polarizing political rhetoric in our country has combined with the coronavirus to bring some unusual stresses to public health in our public schools. In the case of public health, 2020 was the year Anthony Fauci, Deborah Burks, Ashish Jha, and several other public health officials became household names. They were on our TV screens daily, the faces and voices we associated with the virus. In Washington, we saw a lot of Governor Jay Inslee and Department of Health Secretaries John Wiesman and now Umer Shah as they shared news about state government's response. In Spokane County, the job of sharing information about the pandemic fell to Spokane's Regional Health District. Good morning, everyone. Can you hear me? Public Information Officer Kelly Hawkins hosts Facebook Live meetings for the public and weekly briefings for reporters. Okay, thank you, guys. Uh, We had a great Facebook Live today. Um, We had Dr. Francisco Velasquez. He gave an overview about the announcements that were made at the state level um, on Monday. 
Um, and then also uh, we had our COVID-19 vaccine task force lead on Kayla Myers, who addressed a lot of questions that we get from the community. Hawkins has helped to guide the health district's public messaging throughout the pandemic. We really focused on some of the lessons that we've learned dealing with other controversial issues, you know, like vaccinations or fluoridated water, um, really focusing on the group of people who could be swayed one way or the other and possibly swayed by misinformation and making sure that we address the truths as much as possible and get the factual information out there and be the resource for uh, positive information and the resource for factual information because we want people to come to us and not go searching for the for um, for being guide led down um, a path of misinformation by someone on Facebook or someone on Twitter. Even with the mission of providing scientifically accurate information, the health district has had its motivations questioned, especially when former health officer Bob Lutz was fired in November. Some in the community believe he was forced out because of his political views. Others have been unhappy that the state has moved more slowly than other states in removing COVID-related restrictions, and that has put the district in an uncomfortable position. You know, it's a COVID-19 pandemic. It's not a political issue. And we saw often, you know, some of the questions you have caused us to feel like we were in the middle of a political debate rather than a recovery effort. I think one of the things that kind of went against public health in um, through the pandemic has been how the information's constantly changing. This is Health District Administrator Amelia Clark. When we first started talking about, you know, the coronavirus and then COVID-19, you know, we were literally changing messages hourly, daily, you know, and, and I think that the public saw that maybe as a lack of, like that became a lack of confidence. Like, do they not know what they're talking about? When it was really like, We did know what we were talking about based on the information we had. It's just the information kept changing. We were constantly playing catch up. Um, And I know Kelly even, um, you know, like she would start to write something and then it's like, oh, well, let's start over. Like it all changed. A lot of our, our, our best practices, you know, of sitting down and writing out a communication plan and determining, okay, these are the key messages that we want to focus on. And here are key talking points and you'd send those out and the next day you'd be like, wait, wait, I have changes to your key talking points. This is different. And we received more information. And um, so really it's had to force us to, to adjust our strategy, just looking at the high level, like constant assessment, constant determination of who our audiences are and just being as open and transparent and honest as we can. And, and also doing a lot of listening. Like, what are we hearing? What is making people nervous about the pandemic? You know, one of the things I would hear a lot of time just talking to my public health colleagues around the state, when are we going to get the federal plan? Like, what what is the federal plan, you know, associated with, with what we're doing? 
even now is a really great example as we talk about the vaccine rollout, just trying to figure out, you know, the whole supply chain of how that vaccine is going to get out to the states and then from the state level out to the health jurisdictions to get it, you know, in to get the shot in people's arms, which is what public health wants to have happen. I definitely think it's a big impact because when you're leaders, right, like we tend to look to those those people, right? We tend to look to the president's office. We tend to look to the CDC. When when they're not on the same page, I think it creates even more questioning and more opportunity for conspiracies and more um, just misinformation to be fueled in the community, in the public. When um, Governor Inslee just recently changed the phases, um, I think we're now, is it roadmap to recovery? Because see it even, right? Like, so even me keeping, right? It used to be start, safe start Washington. Now we're on roadmap to recovery. Um, That was done. uh, You know, I was on a a call with DOH uh, at like 9.30 one morning and literally at 2.30, he was making the announcement. And when I think about this, like with civil discourse, right, in mind or kind of thinking about how do you make these decisions or work in a community, you've got to kind of look for that common ground piece. And the roadmap right now, that has just come out um, without a lot of local input, you know, from the health jurisdictions. So, you know, obviously that that causes more more feed, you know, negative feedback and positive feedback. You get a little of both. Um, I get questions here at the health district all the time about, you know, why did you set the rate at this, you know, for percent of positivity? And, you know, even just spending the time educating, I'm not the one who sets that rate, right? That comes from the governor. It has also shown me that we have more work to do as a profession of explaining to people what public health does. Amelia Clark is the administrator for the Spokane Regional Health District. Kelly Hawkins is its public information officer. Just like public health, public schools have spent a lot of their time in the COVID spotlight and not always in a good way, says Spokane Superintendent Adam Swinyard. School reopening has has become such a, a divisive topic in our community. And we have a large group of, of citizens that are pro-open school advocates. And we've got a large group of, of citizens that are closed school advocates. 
When the pandemic first hit, districts had little choice but to figure out how to remotely teach children. But as summer brought less community spread, each district had to make its own calculations and decisions about how to proceed in the fall and then communicate that to their patrons. Some brought all of their children back. Spokane opened its schools initially to the children with special needs who most needed in-person instruction. The others learned from home. And now children in most of the elementary grades are spending at least some time in the classroom. We've always operated in the interest of safety and well-being by following the guidance of public health officials. And on, on any given school day, we're following literally hundreds of guidelines and regulations. And we didn't feel like this was a moment where we would start the practice of picking and choosing. And, you know, there's been times that that has really frustrated the open school advocates. And there's been times it's really frustrated the closed school advocates. And, and so it, it has made for a really robust moment of, of lots of discourse and lots of communication and, and fielding lots of, of questions and, and lots of critique. I, from time to time, hear a perception that maybe school employees aren't working very hard because it's not a typical school environment. And and I can assure the community that, that teaching in person in a pandemic, which we've been doing from the beginning, and we're adding grade levels back, uh, you know, uh, we've, we've had kids in the building from September and, and we're adding all kids back by March 1st. That's a lot of work, uh, it, as well as teaching uh, distance learning is a lot of work. So, you know, it, it's been a lot uh, for our staff uh, to manage, and it's, it's, it's not been easy. It hasn't been perfect for, uh, for everyone by no means. And, you know, we, we value and, and prioritize in-person learning. We want our kids back as soon as we can. Even after those students return, Swinyard believes virtual functions will continue, perhaps for some children for whom that has worked, and for engaging parents. You know, Doug, we've had some school board meetings where we've had, you know, seven, eight hundred, almost a thousand people at our school board meetings. And uh, I think at the end of the day, that only strengthens our school district and strengthens our community when we've got that level of civic involvement and and people that are engaging in in that type of way. So I I do think that there are aspects of this that we're going to learn from. There is so much hope for civil discourse in our community um, that maybe we have we have lost sight of a little bit. And, And I just know that even the 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 citizens that have contacted me really, really angry. Um, and really frustrated, um, whether that's about uh, the uh, opening and closing schools or the levy, that taking the time to engage them and 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 even celebrating with them the the value of the exchange. Uh, and I typically thank people like, thank you so much for for civil discourse. Um, even and I appreciate your hard questions, but I just I appreciate that we're able to have the conversation. Uh, and it's been I've learned a lot about how that can can build bridges. So I was just interviewing uh, Brian Beggs, city council president, and he and he told me about how he learned early on in his career not to take things personally. Have you figured that out yet? No, <laughs> we're all on that journey of, of, you know, to what extent we take things personally. But I think in moments like these, you know, these are these decisions have huge ramifications. These decisions are, are, are critical. Uh, and, and I approach them always keeping in mind the gravity um, of, of, the, of that context. In a nearby school district, Central Valley, Superintendent Ben Small has been stressing communication throughout the pandemic. There's been times when we have been able to be ahead of communication and it just has been spot on. And then there's been times when 
we've been hours or a day behind in communication and it causes angst amongst people. And um, just we just want to let our community know our goal is always to improve. Central Valley is Spokane's second largest school district and one that is experiencing rapid growth. The district will open a new high school next fall. Small says Central Valley has always had an active outreach program, bringing in members of the community for open houses, concerts, and other special events. That, of course, has changed during this time of physical distancing, so Small says the district has found other ways to engage. We've done Facebook Live. I'm hosted by other public um, agencies. We have done webinars. From the very beginning um, of the school year, we believed that transparency was going to be vitally important uh, to creating confidence in our system. And so we had voluntarily, one, created an instant response plan that had um, communication lined out for every scenario that we could go through. Um, letters home to parents from principals, um, emails from myself, um, automated phone messages uh, that were recorded so that we could inform our community um, very, very quickly of positive cases in our school. We want families and parents to know what is happening individually in their school. We want uh, families and parents to know what is happening in our district. And so they can go right to our website. They can see... um, our quarantined um, uh, students and staff, they could see positive students and staff numbers there. As we have um, experienced this pandemic, I think there have been things that complicate um, our communication strategies. One is just the length of how long this has gone on. Um, The length of it creates, I, I think, fatigue amongst people it creates fatigue amongst our staff as they have had to adjust. Um, and then another another one is um, the uncertainty and unpredictability of this pandemic. It, the pandemic has been dictated by how the virus outbreak is acting in our community. And so just when you think you have with some certainty action plans to go forward, those uh, plans have to change in order to meet the safety needs of our staff, our students, uh, and our community. And then I think the, the third thing that complicates this is that people, everybody br- brings their own belief system uh, to this situation um, of COVID. And it is um, the belief systems that, that I think um, create um, uh, an emotional response um, to how, we, how each of us individually um, believes about the course of action that our communities and our state have taken as a whole. How is it that you break through each of those and get to a place where you can communicate? And that has been a challenge. Ben Small is the superintendent of the Central Valley School District in Spokane Valley. Coming up, we'll consider a question we've heard a lot the last few years. Why don't we teach civics in school anymore? This is Rebuilding Democracy from Spokane Public Radio. This is Rebuilding Democracy, and now we turn to teaching civics in our schools. The push for more and improved civics education has been brewing in Washington for many years, says Leo O'Leary, who runs the civics education program in the State House of Representatives. There had been a lot of push 
just because of the way that things in our country had gone where people were having a difficult time having the civil discourse. And so creating that part and making it important is something that our legislature felt was important at that point. So that's why they brought that to the table. That was 2018 when the legislature approved a bill that, among other things, required school districts to offer a standalone civics education course to high school students, not just something embedded in social studies classes. I spent many years in elective office in state and local government, and I can say, and probably a lot of you can too, that it's amazing how little people seem to know about how their government works. That was retired State Senator Karen Frazier speaking at a hearing for the bill in 2018. We're so fortunate to live in this country, in our state, with personal protections for our personal lives and uh, good ways to be able to work together. We don't need a coup to make a change in government. So uh, we need to to protect our country. We really need uh, people who are up and coming, uh, growing up to, to know what our government's about, how it works, how to participate in it. Jerry Price is helping to shape civics education in Washington. He's the social studies program supervisor in the state office of superintendent of public instruction. He says civics is more than just how government works. When I think of civic education, beyond talking about sort of the three branches of government, really looking at, um, you know, civitas, right, the idea of citizen uh, and how can we really instill in students the idea that they are citizens and that as a citizen, you have certain rights and responsibilities. And part of that is making sure that you're engaged with your community and trying to solve community problems. You know, when I was in the classroom, we did um, Project Citizen, and that's a, it's a program that asks students to identify um, problems in their community and come up with um, solutions to that. They make policy um, recommendations, you know, and they pull in, uh, you know, so it's really about exploring. So if you have a problem, you know, if you've got a homeless issue or you've got uh, an issue with drug abuse or people driving too fast in a, you know, 25 mile per hour zone or there's not enough crosswalks, what does that look like? How do you get involved? How do you go to your school board and make a proposal? How do you engage your city council or your mayor or, or whatever the case may be in order to get those problems solved? And, you know, I think that that's traditionally been one of the issues with civic education is that it's been seen as in the classroom getting sort of educated about the branches of government without any idea of participatory civic engagement. This academic year is the first where Washington school districts with high schools are required to provide a mandatory half-credit standalone course in civics. When students successfully finish it, it satisfies part of their social studies requirement for graduation. It's a start, says Price. What I'd like to see is an expansion of civic education, uh, taking civics more seriously at the elementary and the middle school levels. I think middle school generally does a good job, you know, but I think we do a disservice um, to everyone when we really look at high school as the place for civic education. I feel like at that point we've kind of missed the boat, although there's certainly great things to do. Early voter registration for 16 and 17-year-olds and getting them sort of thinking about um, the community as they're going out and get preparing to be, um, you know, full-fledged citizens is terrific. But I think that we, we really lose an opportunity when we're not uh, engaging our, our elementary kids. Uh, you know, and elementary teachers are have an incredibly uh, huge lift, but they're already doing civics, but they're not really calling it civics, right? So when students are engaged in 
um, civil discourse in the classroom, when they're um, engaging with ideas and supporting their reasons with evidence and coming up with the solutions to problems. You know, I think that there are ways to incorporate um, civic topics into that work. Price says his office is working with teachers' organizations to support their efforts to bring more civics education into schools, especially elementary schools. Learning to get along with other people is civic education, right? So I would say uh, kindergarten is a great place to start with civic education, right? That's where we're getting our cooperation, our learning to share. You know, these are all foundational skills for, for that get built upon, you know, when people aren't sharing resources or, or whatever. What is, the, what is the role of rules? Why do we have rules? What, what are rules for? You know, those are all conversations that can be had at a very early age um, that help build the scaffolding for, for later, more intense uh, civic education. Don't know much about history Don't know much biology Don't know much about a science book Don't know much about the French I took But I do know that I love you And I know that if you love me too What a wonderful world this would be Don't know much about geography Don't know much trigonometry Don't know much about algebra Don't know what a sliding root is for But I do know what it one is two And if this one could be with you What a wonderful world this would be Now I don't claim to be an A student But I'm trying to be Well, maybe by being an A student, baby, I can win your love for me. Don't know much about history. Don't know much biology. Don't know much about a science book. Don't know much about the French I took. But I do know that I love you. And I know that if you love me too. What a wonderful world this would be. La ta 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 At Mead High School in North Spokane, David Stedman teaches advanced placement government classes. AP classes are designed by the College Board, which also writes the SAT pre-college exam. In the last few years, Stedman says, the College Board has changed the class he teaches. Initially, the course required students to basically memorize quite a bit of stuff. Um, Now the focus is more on uh, critical thinking reasoning, being able to respond to different political scenarios with information about how our form of government and uh, citizens' participation work. He says those changes have made the class more interesting for students. I've got students that run the uh, political spectrum from super, super progressive to um, very, very um, hardcore uh, mega Trump supporters. And the class discussions are full of passion. I tell my students, we're going to talk about everything, 
all the things you were told when you're a, a little kid that you're not supposed to talk about, we're going to talk about it. And you can have whatever opinion you want to have as long as it's based on um, facts, that you use facts. And secondly, that you are civil in that discussion. So really the focus is on that idea of civil discourse. And guess what? It works. I wish the rest of the country could use my students as role models. They are are fantastic. They engage in vigorous debate, vigorous discussion, and often leave class to go out into the hallways and continue their discussion with um, either people who agree or disagree with them. But they also become friends and recognize that you can still, we're all still Americans. Stedman's class gets a rousing endorsement from Mead senior Maddie Ediger. Oh, my goodness. First of all, it is so fascinating, especially in an election year, to be learning about how our government works, understanding the processes that occur in D.C. and locally and in Olympia that oftentimes the average citizen doesn't even understand. And then you couple that with all of the headlines that are happening this year. So then to be able to dissect that with a man who's clearly so passionate about politics and so smart and has so much information to share about it in such a uh, nonpartisan way, to be able to take that information and have discussions with my classmates about how we think we should act on a certain policy or what we would like to see change in our government, and then also comparing it to what our founders had in mind when they set up our government. It's so, so much fun. I go to school each day looking forward to third period with Mr. Stedman. It is one of the highlights of my day. Jillian Holbrook is Maddie Ediger's classmate. This past fall, we had some discussions about our political ideologies. And as a class, we have the opportunity to plot ourselves on a political compass, which shows what sort of views that we felt we were aligned with. And there was a lot of diversity in the in the opinions that we all had. And I found it really gratifying that my peers were open to productively working together as we learn about government and politics, being considerate of one another and having a willingness to listen are skills that I feel like will really serve us in our individual futures. High school debate is one of the outlets for students who want to learn more about politics and government. Natasha Carpenter leads the debate program at Spokane's Lewis and Clark High School. We not only are trying to teach civilized debating, um, civilized argumentation uh, verbally, but we're also teaching a lot of critical thinking skills. A lot of research skills go into debate. Sometimes these are topics that even the coaches uh, have to, we have to wrap our minds around and try to figure out um, what do they mean by universal child care? <laughs> and how does this affect other people, um, not only in the United States, but sometimes around the world? Sometimes we have to think quickly on our feet. So if our plan, when we get into um, a round, where a round is what we call uh, when we're at a tournament and we're going against another team, when we're in a round and we have a plan going in there, a strategy, sometimes that strategy doesn't work. And you have to, quickly uh, 
figure something else out to get that judge to be on your side. A lot of impromptu skills go into debate as well. And as you know, um, speaking with people, sometimes you need those impromptu skills because uh, sometimes you don't know what the how the subject's going to switch or the topic's going to turn. So um, for debate, we... We try to focus on that, and not only that, but we focus on presentation, how you come across to other people. Teacher, teacher, there's so much I'm longing to know, cause my heart has been all aglow from the moment we met. Teacher, make me, make me, make me the teacher's pet. Teacher, teacher, educate me with a caress. Teach me nothing less than a lesson I'll never forget. Teacher, make me, make me, make me the teacher's pet. I read more in your loving eyes than in any book from the shelf. I don't have to tell you you're in a class by yourself. The Washington Legislature is also part of the movement to improve civics education. Leo O'Leary from the Civics Education Program in the State House says the PAGE program allows 14 to 16-year-old students to interact with legislators while they're in session. They come for a week at a time, and we have host families set up, so there's places for people out of the area to stay. They get a stipend for the time that they're on campus working, and their jobs include helping pass materials between offices, um, going to the paid school as a component, and then they also get the opportunity to work on the House or Senate floor, and that's a place where there's very, very limited access, and so they get to be really a fly on the wall while everything is going on around them and laws are being made, and it's a, it's a great opportunity for young people to understand the process. There's also something for teachers, the Legislative Scholars Program. This year, that will be held virtually for 80 elementary and high school teachers. We really take them through some of the curriculum that we do in the paid school, but also bring in lots of guest speakers for them, different elected officials. We have a connection with the Supreme Court where um, the justices bring a program together and talk about that component of things. And so really our goal is to help them collect resources, to open doors to them, um, to you know other uh, parts of government that they might not know about. And then also just to kind of have some support to know there's other people across the state who are doing the same things and able to share ideas. And I know that those teachers have stayed in touch and continued to um, share what they have success with. Leo O'Leary's partner in the Senate, Colleen Rust, says that program is a derivative of a program for teachers in British Columbia's Legislative Assembly in Victoria. Rust agrees with Jerry Price that civics education should not just be for teachers and high school students there should be scaffolding where they start, the kids start really early and they start in elementary school and they build from there. Um, And, you know, we're lucky to have a lot of great civic education partners in Washington state that are coming at civics education from a number of different directions. But, um, you know, I I think that if you start in high school, uh, of course, it's still time well spent, but there are so many years where their education could be building to, you know, have students be even more prepared and more civically minded by the time they reach their high school age. 
Yeah, and, and it varies so much school to school because I know fourth grade and seventh grade are kind of the times where they do some Washington state history. And that sometimes gets some of the civic component as far as government, sometimes doesn't. It just kind of it varies place to place. A lot of times that's when they'll do their field trip and come to Olympia and walk around the Capitol. And that will be the first time of being there for a lot of those students. And it's interesting to see just their eyes get big as they walk into the Marble Palace. Civics education is not just for K-12 students. The legislature's program also has internships for college students, and parents can learn right along with their kids using some of the online tools. Nationally, many groups are offering programs of their own. Carrie Sautner from the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia, right in the cradle of our democracy, says people are hungry for this type of information. Her organization offers a steady diet of programs you can access online for free. We're seeing learners of all ages come with us on Fridays. It's what I refer to as the all-in session. And what is amazing about it is we're absolutely seeing people with different kind of constitutional perspectives and political perspectives, but people are coming to learn the history and learn the current constitutional questions. And we just want to make sure that people, more people know about it and more people want to come because it is bringing, it's doing two things. We're teaching the constitution, all sort of things, teaching the history, but we're also bringing people together. So they're, they're chatting with each other in these programs and hearing perspectives from other sides. And that's important, too, when we have a dialogue around these big constitutional questions. If you're interested in exploring some of these programs and organizations we've been talking about in this program, you can go to our website at spokanepublicradio.org. Thank you for listening to this hour of Rebuilding Democracy. This program is part of a collaboration between Spokane Public Radio, Humanities Washington, Northwest Public Broadcasting, and KUOW Seattle. Exploring Civic and Electoral Participation in the United States. Support for this program comes from the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation and was administered by the Federation of State Humanities Councils. This program was produced by Doug Nedvornik and Carrie Boyce in the studios of Spokane Public Radio. Thank you to Spokane Public Radio's Carrie Boyce and Doug Nadvornik for this episode in the Rebuilding Democracy series, a collaboration between Humanities Washington, KUOW, Spokane Public Radio, and Northwest Public Broadcasting. To find the full event and other great Seattle area talks, go to our website, KUOW.org, and click on the podcast tab. While you're there, subscribe to our podcast and share your comments. Thanks for listening. Tune in again soon.